Welcome to What She Said, a podcast that amplifies the voices of Canadian women. Hosted by me, Candace Sampson. Dive into candid conversations, untold stories, and inspiring journeys of women across the nation. This is a space where empowerment meets education, where we celebrate you, and where mansplaining simply doesn't exist. Together, let's explore the multifaceted world of women breaking barriers and making waves. So sit back, listen up, and let's delve into the lives, challenges, and triumphs of the incredible women of Canada, right here on What She Said. Today's episode is a delightful detour from the norm here at What She Said as I welcome a man to the show. This might actually be coming an annual tradition since last year at this time I was joined by author Chris Bailey, and this year I'm joined by the brilliantly witty and clearly feminist James Fell. I invited James on the show for two reasons. First, my fascination and love for history runs deep, and James' book on this day in history, Shit Went Down, is a treasure trove of historical anecdotes told with a mix of irreverence and seriousness. It's like taking a roller coaster ride through the past, with laughter and learning at every turn. Over the next hour, James and I dive into how history is not just about dates and facts, but stories that shape our present and future. We chat about everything from the importance of remembering our past, lest we're doomed to repeat it, to the fascinating way James intertwines his ADHD with his passion for history. And let me tell you, his journey from aspiring history professor to a best-selling author is as captivating as the historical tales he tells. So get ready for a sweary conversation that's part history lesson, part comedy, and entirely captivating. Meet James Fell. Welcome to What She Said, James. It's nice to have you here. Well, I am honored to be on the show. Well, you know, you, you are, I think you're the only, the second guy I've had on the show this year. So, well, that's why I'm honored. <laughs> it's like, what, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, it's your book. It's your book. I love history. I, it was my favorite subject in school. I was obsessed with everything. Um, to do with history. And I remember thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to be a historian when I get older. I, I literally thought that. Oh, and then wow. I realized there was no future in that, or at least I thought. And here I am talking to you. <laughs> so there's indeed a future in it. There, th it was a road, certainly, um, that, you know, I'd wanted to be a history professor. Uh, I got the master's degree. And then I realized that that becoming a professor wasn't going to work well with uh, being married to a family physician because, well, I was going to, she was in the middle of a residency. I was going to have to leave her to go do a PhD somewhere else. And, you know, I couldn't bear to be away from her for that period of time. And then also the whole, you know, going from university to university, trying to find some place that's going to give you a tenure track position. And then guess what? That's where you're living for the next 30 years now. And asking her to uproot a practice, I was just like, you know what, this isn't, going to work. So I ended up cranking, you know, grinding my way through an MBA so I could become a marketroid and and do that for a living. And then eventually I found my way back to writing about history. <laughs> so So history is your first love then. Uh other than my wife, 
Yes. <laughs> from, but from a professional good stand, answer, good answer. <laughs> from a professional standpoint, absolutely. Um, I'm I was diagnosed with ADHD a couple of years ago, and I was never a good student growing up. It was, uh, you know, I was a C student, and I just I I was flunking out of university. And I took one history course with a very dynamic, engaging professor. And the one thing I kind of liked growing up was I loved reading fantasy novels. And history was like, okay, it's kind of the same thing, but with, uh, can, can I swear in this podcast? Do you allow? Oh, absolutely. Okay. You, you can swear, uh, absolutely. Like, <laughs> okay, good to know. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it, it's, history is like, sort of like fantasy novels, you know, it just with the swords, but not the sorcery kind of shit. And, uh, and one of the things about the type of ADHD that I have is that, you know, we've got this dopamine deficiency where if we find a good source of dopamine, we can tend to hyper fixate on it. So suddenly for the first time in my life, there was something academic that I was big into. And so I just, I threw myself into it. History became my thing. And for the first time in my life, I became a good student and I took every history course that they would possibly let me. And, uh, and it felt good to be doing something that, um, you know, to be studying something that was acceptable, I guess, that, that this is, you know, you are getting a degree in this and, and that, uh, that I was actually working hard at something. So it was also good for my, my self-esteem. It made me feel good about myself that, that I was, you know, getting this approval from the academic, from academia that, yes, you're you're spending a lot of time and focus on this and you're getting good grades. It's like, go James. <laughs> so so I, I feel then like your book on this day in history, shit went down is sort of the perfect marriage then of your love for history and your ADHD in a weird way, because it's short little snippets of history on every day. Did you set out with that to be that way, to be these short, catchy uh, stories? When I began writing the stories, I didn't know I had ADHD. And um, and then when I was diagnosed, um, I wrote a, a article for my substack called Diagnosed with ADHD at the Age of 53. And then there was a bunch of people, in the, and I shared it, and a bunch of people were in the comments saying, I fucking knew it! Because <laughs> they, they would read my writing, and it wasn't just, you know, the short part, but it was I think it's the way that I tell stories, like I meander and and I bury the lead. And sometimes I just like I go off on these tangents. And um, but I guess it works that, you know, a lot of people that, that they say you're not supposed to do that in your writing. But the way I do it, I guess it works for a lot of people. And there have been many people um, uh, who are neuro neurodivergent, not just ADHD, but um, autistic that really like my writing because of the way that I tell stories and uh and a lot of kids uh read it even though it's profane as fuck like there's so much and 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 some some harsh stories like humanity has done some terrible things and and I did not write this book for kids at all <laughs> but when it first came out like a month later I'm getting parents in the comments field saying yeah I bought your book my kids stole it. My kid who never reads stole it and then took it into their room. And I haven't seen them for two days. I've just heard giggling coming from there. And I was like, okay, um, I, I can I can work with this. I can use this to sell more books. I, and I can think of far worse examples for kids um, to be getting into than your book, which has factual information with some swears thrown in. 
Yeah, they could be reading Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to when you first thought about writing this book then, because I read in the beginning that you were you were on your bike, you were riding your bike. But mm -hmm. was there, what were you thinking about at that moment that you felt this was necessary? Oh man, I was in a state of despair because my my writing career, my whole career was on life support. Um, I had become a fitness writer at the age of 40. And, and I chose that after a marketing analysis. Like I said, I, I did an MBA and I worked in marketing and that was, that was to have a job. That was to be a, a good provider. I never liked it. I did not, um, you know, I, I liked the paycheck and that was it. But what I really wanted to do was become a writer. And so I chose fitness because it was something that I'd learned a lot about. I'd really gotten into the whole fitness thing. And I, 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 after a business analysis, realized that is something that there are enough opportunities available to me to, to do it full time. And, uh, and so it, it took a while to build it up, but I made an okay, decent living as a, as a full-time fitness writer. I, one thing I advised every aspiring writer is marry a doctor. So that, that was one of the things that, that made that feasible. And, uh, but then I was 51. And I'd been doing it for a while and I'd, I'd had a book come out the previous year, 2019, that was, um, it was a scientific analysis of the life-changing epiphany called The Holy Shit Moment. And it had been a pretty big book deal. Um, you know, it was a major U.S. publisher for North American publication and it fucking died. Like it just, you know, we, we'd got a pretty big advance. There was a lot of PR and it just did not sell. People didn't want the book. And so here we are a year later and my agent is telling me like, yeah, just, you know, you're only as good as your last book in terms of sales. And I don't think I can sell you anymore. And so I thought, okay, fine. I'd been working on a speaking career. I'd done a moderate amount of public speaking and I knew a lot of other public speakers that were making big money. And I thought, okay, now is the time to, to really kick that into high gear. I'll, I'll work on my speaking career and, and that will be how I can make money. And maybe I can get back to writing at some point. Uh, cause I had a, I had a motivational book and, and, and so that was sort of like your ticket to entry for, for public speaking. I started booking gigs and I knew that I knew how to sell myself. I knew how to hustle and I knew that, that I, I could make it as a public speaker and, and actually, you know, probably make more money than I ever did as a writer. And, but then COVID hit. And so how do you launch a speaking career <laughs> right when everything is being shut down? And so this is mid-April of 2020. And I'm married to this physician who was telling me, this is bad. COVID is bad. And it's going to be, this is going to change the way we live. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm on this bike ride in a state of despair. My career is dead. Um, because I'd given up a lot of my sort of fitness freelancing to focus more on motivational writing stuff, science-based motivational, not the, not the, you know, fluff and nonsense crap. And, uh, and it didn't work out. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I had one asset and that was a Facebook following of about of 80,000 that, um, that liked the way I wrote. They didn't necessarily care what I wrote about. They liked the way I wrote it. And I got this idea that um, just 
because I literally had nothing else to do was to do a profanity filled on this day in history story for the next day and, and posted to Facebook. So I, I, you know, it wasn't this, it wasn't a holy shit moment. Not yet. It was an idea. Uh, so I go home, I look up something for the following day for April 18th, which was about, uh, Martin Luther telling Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor that, no, I'm not backing off on this Protestant Reformation stuff. You know, you can inhale a big bag of dog farts. And, uh, and so that was the story. And I, I wrote it, I posted it the next day. Um, and it did okay. It was like people said, oh, yeah, this is fun. And so I thought, well, literally, I have nothing going on in my life right now. I will do another for the next day, for April 19th, which was about Mae West um, being uh, sentenced to 10 days in jail for corrupting the morals of youth with her, her inaugural Broadway play, which she starred, wrote, directed, and produced. And it was, it was called Sex. And, uh, and so I wrote the story about what a badass Mae West was. And that one blew up. And when, after that one went kind of viral, there was a bunch of comments from my followers saying, you should do an entire year's worth of those and you should turn it into a book. And that was the holy shit moment where I said, you're goddamn right, I should. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we are. <laughs> so I, I kept doing it. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Okay, so that was in April and tw- April of 2020, and then how long did it take you to compile all the stories in this book? So I actually started writing ahead because um, I I decided somewhat masochistically that on the one year anniversary of having the idea to write the book, April 17th, 2021. I wanted to release the book. So from inception to publication was one year. Not only that, it's twice the length of a typical nonfiction book. Usually those books are about 80,000 words. This was 158,000 words. So by late, I think it was early December, I had finished the entire year's worth of stories all the way up to, you know, the next April 17th. And, uh, one of the th- good things about it, so it was published for free on Facebook every day. And it had taken me nine years to get to 80,000 followers. And then all of a sudden my following just started to blow up way faster than it ever had before. It's over 300,000 now. 
And, uh, and mm-hmm. so it, it really took off because it was the only place to get it was for free every single day on Facebook. And my timing was good too, because, you know, like I, I refer to 2020 as a fucktacular shit NATO of ass. Like that year just sucked for so many reasons. And people were doom scrolling like mad. And then they see this quippy, funny little you know, mental break to learn about history that is three or four minutes that they can read. And I gave them a respite from the horrors of what was going on in the world. So that was one of the things that helped it take off. But yeah, so it was, they were done by early December and I had a copy editor and a designer and I hired a guy to help me get it on all these various platforms and linked up with uh, print-on-demand publishing because I I decided to self-publish it. Because publishers were like, okay, yes, you're getting millions of views, but we don't really believe in this. We don't necessarily, you know, you're, you just started this. Like you're, you're not, you're not, you haven't proven that you can sell books yet. So, so we decided to self publish and, uh, and I thought that it would do okay. Um, but I was not prepared for just how okay <laughs> it did. Um, you know, uh, your typical self-published book sells a few hundred copies, maybe a thousand. And in two years of being on sale, volume one sold over 50,000 copies and 90% of them were print. And so they were not cheap. Like this wasn't a, you know, $2.99 Kindle book. This was a, a $20 print book that, um, that sold like crazy. So, and I did a second year. I wrote a, a second year and we also self-published uh, a second volume. But yeah, last uh, a year ago, um, because of those tremendous self-published sales, we got a massive book deal with, um, with Bantam to, uh, to republish two books. And so this is the, uh, this is the, the new and improved version that, uh, they they let me keep selling it for another six months after the deal, which was great because you know Christmas was uh, was a big deal in terms of sales. Actually, in the sec, it sold more in the second year than it did in the first. There was twenty thousand sales in the first year and thirty two thousand in the second year of Volume One, and half of those were in a six week period of late November and December, and. Uh, and then so we we unpublished the books last April, unpublished the self-published ones, and we reworked the shit out of them. That was I I actually I really do like working with a major publisher. So Bantam is part of Penguin Random House, which is the largest publisher in North America. Had a fantastic editor, fantastic team. Um the that you know, it, it, I'd only had these books copy edited, but now they were thoughtfully edited to make them better. We, we replaced about seven stories, I think, and bulked up a bunch of others where she said, yeah, you know, you phoned this one in, do better, basically, like giving me examples of how I needed to, to, um, improve various stories. And then the design, uh, they did the design work on the interior design was just fantastic way more photos, pull quotes. Like it just, it was, it, it went from 
a well-written self-published book to, okay, this is a really professional book now. So I'm just, I, I just love the work they did on it. And, um, and I'm just so happy with, with the result. Well, I, I gotta tell you, I really love, I love the book. I, you know, it, it's, it's in my office. So it's sort of, I pick it up every day now and I just sort of look at, Hey, what's happening today <laughs> or what happened today? And, but I can't help but wonder how often did you look back and struggle to decide what piece of history you were going to share because there must be so much when you I mean, well, we're recording this November 20th, uh, tomorrow's entry, November 21st, you talk about the beginning of Hanukkah, mm-hmm. which started in 164 BC. And I think there must have been a lot of other things that have happened on November 21st <laughs> since, since that time. And so I just think, how did you vet what stories to share uh, uh how did you did you try to work it together so th- there was uh, a fair bit of thought that went into it one of it was diversity so i i didn't want everything to be just like you know western i wanted to try and cover all the continents um including antarctica there's a story in there about uh the endurance uh Shackleton's voyage. <laughs> but so, you know, I, I wanted to cover all parts of the world and various cultures and various time periods. Um and, and so that factored into my decision making. Uh there were a lot of story suggestions. After the column took off on Facebook, people started sending me messages and leaving comments saying, Hey, do you want to write about this? Do you want to write about this? So I would say um at least 20% of the stories were suggested by readers. But one of the, I would say the biggest thing was that I would go scanning through a list of things that happened on. So it's like, okay, now I need to write a story for November 21st. I'm going to look through a list of things that happened on that day. And I would wait for something to speak to me personally. That was really the biggest factor of not just do I personally think this is interesting, but do I think I can nail it? Like, and there were times that I started thinking, ooh, that's a good one. And then I'd start doing the research and looking at it and saying, I'm not feeling it. I don't know where the angle is. I don't know how to James fell this story properly. And so I would give up. I, you know, there was a number that I got like half of it written. I'm like, fuck it, not working. Start over and find a new one. And, but yeah, it was really the ones that, that, that was the big deciding factor was, did I personally feel like I could do a good job of the story? And did I really want to as is how the decisions were made? And how often do you now look at past historic events and compare it to what's happening in the world right now? I mean, are we doomed? Have we learned anything? You know, sometimes I got to wonder. <laughs> like, are- yeah, no, I'm serious. This is a serious question because I honestly think, you know, we know this stuff. It's all there for us. It's all there for the taking to learn. And yet we're still doing the same stupid things over and over and over again. I mean, the 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 famous quote by the philosopher George Santayana is those who um, cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Emphasis on the word condemned. And I I think that, you know, there there's interesting things about human progress and how we define it. And, you know, you look back at, over over a, a large scale of time and you say, well, of course, you know, things are better now than they were 100 years ago. 
we've got you know the civil rights movement and we've got women's rights and and but also it also seems like there's two steps forward and and one step back that uh, there is something innate in human nature that it it can seem like a design flaw in terms of being overly conservative and not wanting to change but from an evolutionary standpoint um you know i'm a very liberal guy and i want things to change i want uh more equality and equity and fairness and and uh you know less less war and bigotry and greed and all those types of things but our species seems to have evolved in a certain way where if you imagine that everybody that wanted change was allowed to just charge ahead and and change everything we wanted that might have fucked things up (laughs) like that who knows what type of chaos that could have led us into and the ones that were saying wait a minute let's hold things back and go at a more sedate pace we're still alive as a species and you have to wonder that is that sort of conservative mindset that holds people back something that has been critical to our survival, um, which I don't necessarily think is an excuse for being a bigoted piece of shit <laughs> and, and being unwilling to, uh, to, you know, move into the 21st century. But it's sort of a, it, it, in some ways, at least it's a bit of an explanation. And, uh, and ma- maybe that's just the way that, that our species works. I'm curious what you think, though, about the current attempts to rewrite history in some circumstances that we're seeing right now. And I suppose, you know, even if we're going to take that a bit further, you know, when we look at Canadian history, for example, what, you know, what I learned in school about how we treated Indigenous people was far different than what we know now. Um, But then you look at examples like in Florida, where they're saying, you know, slaves learned valuable skills uh, you know, trying to rewrite that way. What I'm getting at is, you know, people may have mistrust of of history. And so how do we fix that? Well, you you asked me um how I felt about it, and the simple answer is it pisses me off. Um, but I I think that people like to take pride in their history for something that they were not personally involved in, but you know, my nation has a proud history of this, that, and the other thing. Fine. You want to take pride in that. That's okay. You're allowed. That's something you're allowed to do. But if there are things that you will take pride in in your history, then you cannot ignore the things that are shameful. That uh, if you're, because it, it seems there's a lot of hypocrisy there that it's like, well, why should I feel shame for things that my, my long dead ancestors did it's like well you take pride in it the things they did so it's it's not it's not you know either or it's either both or neither and uh and so if you're going to take pride in things they did then you also have to admit the shameful bits but there's also there can be pride in examining how far we've come you know you acknowledge the shitty things that we have done um, and then you figure out, okay, let's listen to what George Santiana said and not be condemned to repeat those terrible things because history is a good teacher in terms of 
moving forward and trying to figure out how we are not going to destroy ourselves. I think history is a good teacher, but I think it depends on who's teaching it, unfortunately, because we're we're seeing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just seeing so much um spin, spin put on history, which mm-hmm. is which is crazy to me. So as you were researching and writing this book and looking at all these really significant historical events, did you have any sort of holy shit moments where you thought, wow, this is crazy? Yeah, I, I there there was one interesting one about uh the the death of Greek democracy. Uh it was the Battle of Mantinea, um and uh which was interestingly enough on July fourth. Uh and I can't remember the it was I don't know fourth century. Uh, I don't remember the exact year. But I remember when I when I wrote the opening line for that story because it was the fourth of July, um I said that uh that to the readers it's like what you thought i was going to write about america today sorry i'm gonna you know after after the events of january 6th i'm going to examine the death of a different democracy (laughs) and so it was about a um a big battle that ended up uh debilitating both the athenian side and the spartan side that weakened them both so that philip of macedon was able to come in and and conquer that and then create an empire that he handed over to his son, Alexander, who became Alexander the Great. But one of the the things that that was fascinating to me about it was that Philip of Macedon's autocracy was welcomed by the Greek populace to bring order because the way that um, things have a tendency to move is that there is an autocracy and uh and then it, it sort of evolves that that can evolve into more of an aristocracy and uh where you know an autocracy is one leader and then you've got more of a an aristocracy and then eventually those things can move toward um democracy but then as democracy becomes more corrupt and via various avenues, then it can devolve again into an autocracy. And that was just sort of a theme that we've seen repeat this, this circle of, of governance over the years. And then we've got different types of, um, of governments. We've got the theocratic type, uh, where religion plays a significant role, but we've also got, uh, you know hegemonies and um and oligarchs where it's it's basically about money and even today in democracy what we call modern democracies they're kind of oligarchies because it's really the ones with the most money that are going to end up in power that yeah we've got our votes and those things do make a difference but in terms of who the people are that are running and having the actual leader position, leadership positions and how they're influenced by lobbyists and uh, money just plays such a significant role in that, that yes, we have democracy, but it's still kind of an oligarchy. Hello, I'm Wendy Mesley. There you are. A lot of people have wondered what happened to you. I could say the same about you, Maureen Holloway. Well, here we are, a few years after we left our previous jobs. We've been busy. 
we have a podcast. I know you're thinking who doesn't, but ours is really good. It's called Women of Ill Repute. We don't just talk to women, though. Just the most interesting people you'd ever want to meet. Artists, musicians, comedians, doctors, activists, convicts, writers, sex workers. Drop some names. Jan Arden. Pamela Anderson, Bruce Coburn, Samantha Irby, Louise Penny, Marilyn Dennis, Colin Mockery. We laugh, we cry, sometimes we argue. Come and find us. Our website is womenofillrepute.com. Or try Apple, Spotify, and all the podcast places. So now you know what happened to us, Women of Ill Repute. Do you remember, you know... Sort of midway through the pandemic, there was this meme going around that said, imagine imagine kids in, you know, 20 years learning about the year 2020. I don't remember that one specifically. There, it, was, it was just this funny little meme that went around and it was like, yeah, because 2020 is going to be an entire semester. <laughs> yeah, just, probably. Just that, just that year alone. But how do you think history will look back on the time we're living in right now. I mean, I, I do think specifically when you look at the United States, but also other nations, um, that it will be shown as a time of tremendous division, that uh, COVID really did change things. And there's one of the things, if there was a single silver lining to COVID, it was Trump losing the election. Um, if it had not been for COVID, there's many analysts that have said that it, he was, it, it was a certainty that he was going to be reelected. And it was only because of his utter botching of the response that he ended up losing the election. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was as terrible as it has been. And the many, many millions of deaths, that was an undeniable silver lining. And, but it, it created so much polarized so much more polarization the polarization began really with the election of president obama in 2008 because you know you remember the tea party the tea party formed a month after he was inaugurated in 2009 and it was because of the audacity of a black man living in the white house and that it more than anything else it was 8 years of obama that just caused the racism in the United States to fester and uh, and become much more public. That I mean, it was always there. It just became much more publicized. And, with, and Trump had always been very anti-Obama. He'd been a vocal critic. He was the, you know, one of the original birthers and all that kind of stuff. And he was able to spin that into the presidency. And it just made things so much more divisive that when all of a sudden now COVID shows up, and and it just took that and it it injected steroids into that division and and it's still there i mean i'm seeing it you know we've seen it spill over the border into canada well, this is where i was going next uh how history will look at the at what happens with canada now because you know historically we're we're best friends with the us uh and you know we tend to uh, follow them in some in some regards. Do you think we will follow in their embrace of this populist madman uh, and and sort of have these policies bleed into our our country and our policies? Oh, I mean, we already 
are when you look at um I, I'm concerned about the next federal election. I think that, that Polyev is like Trump in a lot of ways. And uh, I think he would be an absolutely uh, disaster for our country. Um, but, you know, we think about when you look back at Canadian elections over the years, is this is the way we do things like one party's in power for quite a while and then another party's in power for quite a while. And there is so much hate for Trudeau, some of it based in reality, but a lot of it just unfounded. It's just they wrap their personality around just hating this one man. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately what we're seeing is that we're not seeing rational alternatives anymore. Like I think, yes, there, there's going to be a conservative party. There needs to be a conservative party, but it needs to be rational conservatives, conservatism, not these, these borderline fascists <laughs> we've been having like you know Stephen Harper was terrible but he wasn't really so obvious about it he was more subtle now we've got guys that are blatantly just terrible and and i think polyev is is the worst we've had yet in terms of a, a conservative leader and my atheist ass is saying god help us <laughs> if he ever becomes prime minister and i'm you know maybe he will not last as leader maybe someone better will come in but but it does frighten me that uh, that we are becoming so polarized. And I, I think that part of that is social media as well. It Social media profits by amplifying discontent and disagreement. And I think one of the things that people need to remember is that the majority of people aren't like either side. We've got the really angry, mouthy people freaking out on both ends of the political spectrum, and they are a distinct minority. And most people are actually pretty reasonable. Um, we just need to make sure that the reasonable people are the ones that are getting out and voting and, and trying not to be swayed by, by the crazies. So your book is incredibly entertaining. It's it's a great, fun read for people who want to be informed. But do you have um, a hope? Do you have a, for people when they're finished reading? Do you hope they walk away with a certain feeling or, uh, you know, a will to do something different? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's. I'm not sure that that was something that that was strategically planned it was just me being myself i mean when i was a fitness writer i was very much a myth buster that was trying to genuinely help people because i'd seen people that had been um taken advantage of by a very corrupt industry in fitness and weight loss and diet and and so i was i was trying to help people and then when i started that was just my makeup the way that that i wanted to do things and, you know, I could have made a lot more money. I, my joke was that if I wanted to make money, I could have packaged up my neighbor's dog shit into gelatin capsules and sold it on the Internet as an all-natural appetite suppressant. But that was, that was not the way that, that I was sort of built. So when I wrote this book, you know, a lot of, a lot of history, some of it is, is fairly opinionated, but, but a lot of it is, tries to be at least somewhat objective. And I'm like, fuck objectivity. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm a very liberal person that's going to call out bullshit in every shape and way, shape and form, whether it's fascism, bigot, bigotry, you know, capitalism run amok, um, oppressive religious theocracies, all of that kind of stuff. I'm going to expose all that bullshit so that people have a better understanding 
of um, of our failures as a human species, but also our triumphs by holding up, uh, you know, telling stories of amazing people that did amazing things in in often horrible circumstances. And I wanted to be um, very inclusive by telling stories of, you know, people who are not white and not male. <laughs> and so, you know, champions of civil rights, like I, I wrote about Rosa Parks and uh, the famous um, Star Trek kiss between uh, Nichelle Nichols and William Shatner and, and you know, things like that, that, that I wanted to talk about how these actions by these people changed history for the better and you know maybe maybe you could be like them <laughs> maybe you could maybe you could be one of those people that that changes history for the better when it came to you know this is what she said obviously so when it came to sharing women's stories through history did you did you get outside opinions before you wrote that story to make sure you weren't sharing it from an entirely male point of view or how did you Absolutely. approach that? <laughs> I'm curious. Um, so I'd, uh, I had been told that I have some good feminist bona fides that uh, I've always tried to, you know, amplify women's voices and, and speak to women in a way that was respectful. I mean, I've been very influenced by strong women in my life my mother um had a horrible childhood and th then ended up she uh burst through glass ceilings to become a very celebrated businesswoman and you know m married to a woman who graduated top of her class from medical school i've always realized that that you know there was uh, there was absolutely no logic in trying to say that men were better than women because i'd witness no we're fucking not <laughs> like it's just <laughs> absolutely not true uh, but then when I got into the fitness writing, um, the, I was the fitness expert for Chatelaine for six years. Um, I wrote okay. for their website like every week. And, uh, and because things like fitness, weight loss, nutrition, generally speaking, are of more interest to women than men. Um, and I think one of those reasons is patriarchal bullshit of, uh, you know, there's a lot more pressure on women to look a certain way. And I had learned early on that, that you know, there, there's shame does not motivate people. And, and I tried to write my fitness articles in a way that were inclusive and understanding. And so that um, by the time I was finished with fitness writing, the, the metrics, the, the demographics on my Facebook page were 67% women. And now it's over 70%. <laughs> so when I switched to writing about history, it actually went up. But uh, so I, I'd had a lot of practice in trying to just, it's not like I'm trying to write for women. I'm just trying to write not like a douchebag. And, uh, and so I'd had a lot of practice just trying to write like I was a decent human being. But when I started writing these stories, I did have... Um, there were three women that I mentioned in the acknowledgments of the book. Uh, my friends, uh, Carrie, Michelle, and Rianne, that, uh, that anytime I was uncertain, I'm like, you know, am I, am I doing this right? Because, <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't have that lived experience, whether it's being a woman or being not white or, um, you know, not a member of a specific religion, that, that you can try your best to be sensitive and still fuck it up because you don't have the lived experience. 
So I reached out to people with that lived experience to say, how did I do? And, uh, and quite often they said, you fucked this up. You need to change this. And, and they would give me advice and I would change it. And, uh, and not only that, but then there was, there was other stories where then I published it on Facebook and there were other people that's like, um, yeah, you fucked this part up. <laughs> and I'm like, so that was one of the great things about it first being published on Facebook was that, you know, I got free editing, free grammatical typo fixes, but I also got suggestions in terms of sensitivity and tone. So I was always very receptive to feedback. That's one of the things that I kind of became known for was that when, uh, you know, on places like Facebook, when people criticize uh, something that you wrote, often the writer gets automatically very defensive and it never goes well. <laughs> and so, but for me, it was like, um, if, if I thought that the criticism was legitimate, like if one or two people said, oh, I don't disagree. Uh, I disagree with the way you said this, but everybody else is fine with it. Then it's like, okay, uh, maybe that's not worth paying attention to. But when a number of people are saying, okay, this is upsetting. I, I don't like the way you said that. Then all of a sudden I need to start paying attention. And there were many stories, many, like not just stories, but but like a sentence here or there, or just one joke that I made that crossed a line. Because the book is funny, right? That you got to right. gotta push the envelope a little bit here and there, but sometimes you, you cross the line. And and so I was, I, I didn't let it dictate my writing, but I did always take the opportunity to learn if I pushed it too far. And, and so there was, there was frequently changes that were made you know, there's still, you can't say that the book is, is, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of harsh truths and a lot of profanity and a lot of kind of occasionally off color and raunchy jokes in there. So I didn't, I didn't water things down. I just tried to be gentle with people that, that, needed it i guess is is the way that i would say it well i want to vouch for your your feminist uh, perspective because I, I i went on your Substack this morning and i read uh, an article you wrote uh, she doesn't owe you shit oh yeah <laughs> but i thought that was very well said oh, well. Uh, louder for the people in the back please uh it was it was an excellent article so i encourage people to go over and check out your Substack. constantly uh now you're you know you're on social media i am going to assume that there's more coming uh on this day in history down the road uh but what do you think about uh you know i saw you you did a a video the other day about this current take on osama bin laden's letter to america mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, a reinterpretation i would say <laughs> of a historic event well uh so what are your thoughts on that i mean the the tiktok thing you don't really have a lot of time to get into it because, uh, it, you know, it's just a quippy little video. So I decided that I was just going to be silly. And and the my, my response to the people that were, were saying that Osama bin Laden, maybe he wasn't such a bad guy. And maybe 9-11 was perhaps justified that after reading this letter that my response to that was saying, I took a few pages of notes and my notes were, you know, I held up one piece of paper that said shut, another piece of paper that said the fuck, and a third piece of paper that said up. Because that was kind of all that I felt that 
that for for a TikTok audience that that was all that really needed to be said and that that really blew up and there were a lot of very angry comments that a lot of people were saying nobody is praising bin laden nobody is saying 911 was justified and then there was a bunch of comments that were praising bin laden and saying that that it was justified so if you oh, I saw them yeah. yeah if you follow at sweary historian on tiktok you can find it's the latest video you can find the comments of people saying that exactly that but one of the things that was disturbing about it was if you read the letter um it's about four thousand words long that this is things that i didn't get into in the video there is just a, a stream of anti-semitism in there like mm-hmm. it, it's it's so much of it plus saying that you know america is flawed because they they make the, they have the audacity to make their own laws whereas they should be they are infidels who should be following uh sharia law and so we've got people there was also stuff in there about you know american imperialism which okay yeah <laughs> absolutely they, they've done a lot of horrible things and they latched onto that where it's like, we're learning for the first time that America has been imperialistic and done terrible things in its history. It's like, did you never read a fucking book? But right. the, but then yes, that's in the letter, but there's all, you didn't say anything about how he thought that America needed to follow Sharia law and that, you know, saying all these terrible things about Jewish people and they just kind of ignored all of that. And I just, it just made me think, Jesus Christ, there's something, there's some really stupid people on the internet. You know, I love, I love TikTok. Uh, I love and hate it. And, and for this reason is that, you know, the, the videos are short. There's not a lot of room for nuance. Uh, things go viral for seemingly no reason sometimes. Uh, and, and so this, this letters to America going viral right now, um, as we're in the midst of this horrible crisis happening in in the Middle East, it, is it's not helpful for what's happening. No, absolutely not. And um, I think that it's just another one of those things that's leading to the division that um, that we've witnessed. And one of the things that that has been bothersome for me is that um, you know if, if you are liberal minded. And there are people on the far right that are giving you shit for saying something. You don't give a shit. It's like my my opinion is, ooh, I pissed off a bunch of Trumpers. Good. Fuck them. Um, but when you've got people on the far left that are trying to like outwoke you for lack of a better term, then that can cause people to stay silent. And one of the things that that is really disturbing to me is that, you know, especially understanding history and how rampant and pervasive anti-Semitism has been for millennia, that any time that you show concern over the rise in anti-Semitism right now has people on the left saying, oh, so you want Palestinian children to die? And I'm like, I didn't fucking say that. Oh, of course not. I think it's horrible what's going on over there. But when there's, you know, twice now that a Jewish school in Montreal has been shot up and then a Jewish school in Toronto that had to go into a lockdown because of a legitimate threat. And, you know, Jewish people thousands of miles away from the Middle East 
are, you know, concerned for their lives, then yeah, that's a problem that we need to talk about. And no, it doesn't mean that I want Palestinian children to die. Pull your head out of your fucking ass. So, but I, I have witnessed that people are frightened into calling out anti-Semitism because of the backlash from from people that are just don't understand nuance. One of the things that that I worry about with with the polarization of society is that it's not just on one end. That that you know, there's a lot of rational people on both sides of the center that are getting you know swayed one way or the other or just um driven crazy by by extremists on either end of the spectrum and one of the things i've noticed that you know spending so much time online that and on social media because that's how i made my living like i owe my living to facebook largely that that i've i've made quite a bit of money because of facebook and that involved you know analyzing what people are saying and analyzing their arguments and and uh and sort of incorporating that in some of my writing and i have if i've learned one thing it's that extremists are dumb <laughs> they are they they are just not smart people when people take a really extremist viewpoint no matter what it's about if it's in regards to politics right or left or health or something else when someone goes into uh gets those extremist blinders on they're just generally not very intelligent people that they just don't get nuance and everything is just so black and white you're you're obviously going to have material forever uh, yeah no with. kidding <laughs> i mean you could just do a near history of 2020 and you could fill up a whole year yeah uh it felt like a lot happened in 2020 it's every day we were turning around something was happening and i think we've just become used to it now Mm-hmm. the constant news cycle uh, that we're in and these crazy events happening. Uh, so where can people keep up with you? I mean, you mentioned Facebook, obviously. You're on Substack. You're on TikTok. Where where do you want people to find you? Um, well, I would say that the best place is to just give me your email address. Go to jamesfell.substack.com and you can get a free email subscription. And that way you're just, you're not going to miss anything. Because, you know, algorithms on Facebook and Twitter and TikTok, whatever, or who knows what you're going to see. Um, there's there's I've built a very good community on my Facebook, which is actually if you just Google James Fell, you'll find it. But it's a throwback to my old fitness writing days. My actual Facebook URL is Facebook.com slash body for wife. <laughs> so it's but, you know, if if you want to if you want to participate in a lot of the comments i do have a still have a very good community there the the comments field is often a riot uh so you can go and hang out there but to make sure that you actually see what all the new stuff that i write substack is is the place but yeah i pretty much own uh james fell on google so if you just type james fell into google you're gonna find you're gonna find me wherever all right, James, thank you so much for joining me today. I have to tell you this, your book is a delight. Um, history is sometimes very serious and a little dry, uh, <laughs> but you you make it fun 
and and you also brought really really great uh, information. A lot of things I didn't know, so I, I love that. Like I didn't know how Hanukkah started. Uh, I was thrilled with that. I was thrilled that on my birthday, October 9th, uh, you share a story about Malala, who I think is uh, I hold up as a personal hero uh, for for women's rights. So uh, great, great book, and uh, I encourage people to go out and read it. And thank you for joining me today. Um, oh, you're very welcome. Just a quick note about the Malala Yousafzai story was that I, when I shared that on Twitter, her father started following me and he shared the story himself, even though like there's a lot of swearing. Oh, I was going to say, wow, that must have been a, a, quite a, a pull for him. Do I share it or don't I? Yeah, I? I thought that was pretty wild. I was I was not expecting that. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. But yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you having me on your show and uh, it's been a been an honor I look forward to following along I, I signed up by email today so thank Terrific. you so much for joining me oh you're very welcome if you liked today's episode please take a moment to share it with others also be sure to subscribe to what she said talk with Candace Sampson on your favorite podcast provider stay up to date with my newsletter by signing up at what she said talk.com and be sure to follow on social at what she said talk on Facebook Instagram and X you can also catch me on TikTok and threads at Candace said finally you can catch what she said on the radio weekly on 1059 the region in York blast the radio in Ottawa and 1077 pulse FM I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.